In Luke 11, we see the Lord's Prayer. This is familiar for most of us, but today I want to look at it maybe from a different point of view. I'm going to focus on not the words themselves as this technical worksheet on how to pray, but really what the nature of our relationship with God is, how we approach him in prayer. And I want to present to you this claim, right? So the nature of a relationship determines the depth, length, and quality of our communication. So I work at Wood Memorial uh, Junior High. I'm the English teacher there, and I have good understanding supervisors, um, my principals, and they sincerely care about me. But the care that they have for me is based completely on the fact that I signed a contract um, that says that I'm going to take care of these eighth grade hooligans, and as a result, I'm going to, they are going to pay me money. This is the relationship between an employee and an employer. It makes sense and it's appropriate for me to talk to them about things that I need in my job, problems that I'm having with certain students, um, the need for curriculum. But if one day I were to approach my boss and ask uh, just about like life questions, like, hey, I just had this fight with my spouse and I was hoping to get your take on it and just get some counsel from you. That would be odd. That would, it wouldn't really fit within the relationship. Um, also, if I, if I wanted to quit my job and then years later I go to Wood Memorial and I talk to those same principals and I say, you know, hey, I've, I've fallen on hard times and I need some money. Uh, would you guys mind just helping me out? Um, that's probably not going to happen because our relationship isn't based on the fact that you know, there's, there's this uh, care for me and, and like, oh, we've got to take care of Mr. Pope because he was our teacher three years ago. No, it has to do with the contract that I'm in. Many of us approach God similarly. We don't realize it, but our prayers are actually wrong before they even start. This is because we believe that God is our manager. We provide him holy living, and he provides us blessings. He answers our prayers. Or maybe your idea of God and how he works with us and what our, the nature of your relationship is, is a little bit different. Maybe you're a little bit more religious. So you think of God as your Lord, first and foremost. He is the creator. He is high and above and apart from us. Um, and these things are true. Um, but then whenever we bring that approach into our prayers, it, it can make our prayers seem like, is, is God really going to act? Will he stoop to our level and listen to us? Um, he's so far from us. Would he, would he act in this world? Or is he just the one who wound the clock of time and then he's let it go? Will he still act? So if it's not this, if it's not a manager where we, we provide services, God does stuff for us, or, and it's not this idea of a very far away God who may or may not listen to us, sometimes has dealings with the earth, not very often, then what is it? Well, we know from our reading in Luke so far that Jesus often went away to pray. 
But what did he say? What does his prayer look like? What does he want us, as his followers, to do? Jesus makes this incredibly clear through his teachings. So the the things that he teaches, the Pharisees, his disciples, the people around him, and also his prayers that we have recorded, that approaching God is done in one way. This is the way that he almost always talks about God, and that is God as Father. The Lord's Prayer tells us what this looks like. So let's take a look at the passage in Luke 11. It says, Now it came to pass, as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. So he said to them, When you pray, say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us day by day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And he said to them, which of you shall have a friend and go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has come to me on his journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within and say, do not trouble me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give to you. I say to you, though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. So I say to you, ask it and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives, and he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, would he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, would he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? God is our Father. This is the most used term for God by Jesus. This is also the the way that Jesus most describes his relationship to God. He is the Son, God is the Father. It's vital that we don't just learn the words to pray, but the very basis of our communication with God. Jesus understood that prayer's effectiveness and purpose is ground in the relationship rather than magic words. We often have distorted understanding, understandings of who God is um, and who fathers are. Um, and that's, that's because we've grown up with distorted images of God and we've had fathers who haven't perfectly imaged God. Surprise, surprise. God is identified as our father. He is not the one who wound the clock of time and occasionally acts in the world. He's not the king that we can diplomatically win over with the right gifts so that he will do what we want. He's not a genie that is forced to do whatever we say, supposing that we want good things for the right reasons. He's our father, but he's not our father like our father. 
He's not someone who we have to appease in order to have a relationship with him. He's not a, a father who's left you. He's not waiting to punish you when you do something wrong or whatever the twisted image of fatherhood that, that you have from growing up is. We all have some distortion because we've, we read our own experience into who God is as our father. For some people, there were, you, you didn't have a father in your home. So for God to be your father doesn't have, carry any good connotation except someone who is absent. But God is our father, and that's not defined by our human experience or by what we grew up on. It's defined through God's word. It's defined by God's relationship as he's expressed it through his son. In Ephesians 2, 12 through 14, it says, At the time that you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Romans 5.8 says, but God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is one of the many wonders of the gospel. All of us, sons of Adam, which just means that we're sinners, um, were separated from our father God in the garden. We recognize the loss as something of something that we needed. And, but with sin came this insatiable desire to fill the void with things rather than the one the relationship that we need. And we, we filled our lives, and we continue today to fill our lives with things that God created that are good in this world, but we try to put them out of place. We try to use them in our own time for our own purposes, apart from the purposes that God designed them for. We seek things like sex, relationships, consumerism, just accumulating things, work, family, entertainment. All the while, we have this itch that we can't scratch. Even in the greatest points of life when we feel the most, that feel the most real and meaningful, we're left wanting, wanting a short time later. While we were still valuing things over the giver of every good thing, while we were worshiping and serving the thing created over the creator, while we were discontent and groaning in our sins, God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He sought us out when we were unworthy and drew us up near him, but he didn't stop there. Just like the prodigal son who squandered his inheritance, he lived a life fulfilling the lusts of his flesh, he wasted everything that he had been given. And then he, he ends up with nothing and he, he ends up working at a pig's farm, a pig farm um, for a pig farmer, and which is not the job you want if you're Jewish, right? Um, so he ends up in this job and he realizes, I, I had it better with my father, even, even if I could just be a servant in my father's house, that would be better than this. This is horrible. And he heads back and he's hoping that he can, he'll be accepted just as a servant. But his father runs to him whenever he returns and he hugs him and he celebrates his return. He puts a ring on his finger, a robe around him. He kills the fatted calf 
and he throws a party because his son, who is lost, has been returned. His son, who had run away, who had squandered everything, who had blown a ton of money, done a lot of wrong, is now back. And the point isn't what the son had done, but rather what the father is doing, that the father loves him. And this is the nature of our relationship to the father, that God loves us. We've squandered all that we've been given, a good world given to us by a creator. But God isn't holding that against us and saying, you're, you're dirty, you're never going to be worthy of my love. But instead, through Jesus, he has expressed his love to us. Disciples of Jesus recognize themselves in the story because it depicts their relationship to God as father. The father who loves them because they are sons and daughters of him. Romans 8 says this very clearly, starting in verse 14. It says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage, again, to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs heirs of God and join heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may be glorified together. We are loved by God because he has adopted us through our unity with Jesus by the Holy Spirit. The love of God invites each and every one of us um, into prayer, into communion, into relationship with the creator, with God, our Father. The love of God is shown to us in adoption. And this is very intentional. Because in adoption, there's something special that happens that's even different from having our own kids. In adoption, one who was, was not a part of the family is welcomed into the family by a unilateral love. It's not on the basis of anything that the adopted has done, but on the basis of the family's love and commitment of love for that new piece of the family, the, the adopted son or daughter. And it's this relationship that best describes God's relationship to us. That while we had nothing to offer, while we were abandoned, while we were left high and dry in our sins, that God sought us out because he loves us. And he loves us, not because of something we have to offer. He loves us because he loves us. We are loved because God chose to love us. He is our good, loving father, and nothing can change this. So how do we pray to a good father? How does this change the way that we speak to God in prayer? Americans have become increasingly irreligious in recent times. Uh, but one thing that has not trailed off, while church attendance has trailed off, reading the Bible, knowing parts of the Bible, that is all trailed off. One thing has remained rather constant, and that's that most people still pray. But what's different about the prayers of people who know God as their father than the prayers of those who are just pleading for something to change in their life and praying to an unknown God. What's different? We have to pray. We have to approach God in adoration and trust and confession and request, 
because we know that he cares and he desires to hear us, to give us good gifts. The two stories in this chapter show um, two human relationships, that of a father and that of a friend. Shows that a friend will respond to a friend's pleas. Even if they're annoying and he doesn't want to get up in the middle of the night and give his friend bread, he will eventually do it because of the relationship. And he he's going to eventually realize, even though it's annoying, like apparently this guy really needs some bread. So he's going to respond to the request, right? Um, I would equally be annoyed, you know, if, <laughs> if one of you ended up at my doorstep at three in the morning and you're knocking on my door and you're like, hey, uh, I had some family come over and I'm out of chicken. Could you just give me some chicken. I'd be like, go away, it's 3 a.m. But eventually, um, if you would keep going, I would still, I would probably give it to you just to make you leave, right? Um, sometimes this passage is taught as a call for persistence in prayer. Like we just need to keep knocking on God's door and eventually God's gonna give us exactly what we want. But that's definitely not the application. And there are several reasons for that. We know that that's not the way that prayer works, because two of the biggest people in the Christian faith, actually the biggest person in the Christian faith, and then one of the biggest teachers in the Christian faith, um, did not have their prayer work like that. There was a guy by the name of Jesus of Nazareth, um, who it's recorded in Matthew, went to God in prayer and he said, oh my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And what ends up? As he drinks the bitter cup, he dies. He bears the weight of sin and all of this world on his shoulders. The cup is not taken from him, even though he asked for it. And likewise, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, starting in verse 7, And lest I should be exalted above, me above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me. Some people think that the thorn in the flesh was a, a bodily ailment that he got from all of his whippings. Um, some people thought it was a sin that he struggled with it with, but regardless, this is something that he's constantly struggling with and something that impairs his travel, impairs his Christian faith and his teaching. All right, so whatever it is, it's a problem. So this thorn in the flesh was given to him and it says, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that I, it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ might rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and in reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Additionally, this passage makes it clear that Jesus isn't saying, look, even humans, or he's not saying, look, you just have to keep going and eventually God's gonna listen to you. He's, he's very clearly saying that even humans who are tainted by sin will grant the request after persistence. How much more will God, who is our father, grant our request? Additionally, there's the specific example of God as a father, um, as a father to a son. And the son asked for, um, for eggs 
He asks for a fish. And he's given us, would, would a father give him a snake or a scorpion? No. God, God is our father. He's not going to, whenever we ask for things, he's not going to give us things that hurt us. But because of the relationship, we, like this small child asking for food, we trust God to give us what we need. Like Paul asking for this thorn in the flesh to be taken away. And instead he, he receives this word from the Lord that um, his, in his weakness, he's going to be strong, right? He's going to, he's going to be made strong through the weakness. He'll be, his strength, God's strength is made perfect in weakness. In the same way, God is going to work in our lives as we ask him to work. That's the way that he wants to work in the world. It's through our request. He wants us to pray, to ask. It says that God will answer our request. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Seek and you will find. So God desires our prayers. God desires us to not approach him in this transactional way of like, God, I'm going to do these things and then you can do what I need you to do. And then whenever we fail, we're like, okay, I understand why God hasn't answered my prayers recently. I've been a pretty bad guy, but you know, I'm going to clean myself up. And then God, then you'll need to answer what I, what my prayers are. That's not the basis of our relationship. It's not a manager. It's not someone who we do things for and then he gives us things in return. But instead, he's our father who desires good for us. And we trust him. So where do we see this? We see this so clearly in the the Lord's Prayer. And if you struggle with prayer, as I have often struggled with prayer, you'll find yourself in good company because the disciples, Jesus' closest followers, also struggled with prayer. They, they noticed that John had taught his disciples how to pray, and they say, Jesus, teach us to pray the way that, you're, that John's disciples were taught. And Jesus decides to do it. If you're not sure how to, how to pray, this doesn't excuse your lack of prayer, but it does call us to, to pray. Um, we need to pray not just the words, uh, that Jesus said. That's not what he, he wanted to teach us. He wasn't like, oh, you don't know how to pray. Here's some words for you to recite every once in a while. But he does actually say to say these words. He doesn't say, pray like this. He actually says to say this. And the point isn't that this is going to be enough. You know, this 20-second prayer of praying the Lord's Prayer. But whenever you pray this prayer, it changes the way that you interact with God. Whenever you recognize God as your father and you pray the Lord's prayer, there's something to these words that Jesus wants us to know and he wants us to recite and he wants us to pray that change the way that we approach God. Sometimes we, we say this in kind of vain repetition. Uh, for me, whenever I was 12 years old, we moved to North Carolina and I had always played baseball whenever I lived in Wabash, uh, which is where I was born and grew up. And so my, my parents wanted to get me involved in baseball that summer that we moved so there could be like this kind of maintaining of the normal schedule. So we, uh, I, I was signed up for a team and 
I, I joined this team in North Carolina, which is kind of the Bible Belt of sorts. And something really interesting that they would do um, is before every single game, they would recite the Lord's Prayer. And I thought that was so weird. Even though I knew the Lord's Prayer, I was like, what are, what are we doing right now? And it would just be like a rallying cry and we'd be like, yeah, let's do it. Let's go win this baseball game because we just said the Lord's Prayer. So it was like this way that we're going to get a blessing for our game somehow. Um, but what Jesus is calling us to is not vain repetition, but rather conforming to the way that Jesus understood his relationship to God. Whenever we understand God as Father, we find strength, we find meaning, challenge, and posture all in this prayer. So let me read this prayer again, and then we're going to break this down. So he said to them, When you pray, say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us day by day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So something that's really interesting about this prayer is that the first half in both editions, there's, there's one kind that's in Matthew and there's one here, but in both of these prayers that Jesus said for his followers to pray, you'll notice that the whole prayer is not about your needs, right? He's, he's talked a lot about prayer, prayer being about needs um, in the teachings that follow the Lord's Prayer. But notice that the first half of the prayer has everything to do with praising God, with acknowledging who God is and what his role is here in this world. So it says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And there are, there are a lot of words here that we, we don't use every day, but hallowed simply means to be set apart, holy to be set apart. So your name is set apart and you are the father who loves us. So may your name be set apart in this earth. We know that one of the 10 commandments is that we should not take the name of the Lord our God in vain. And this isn't a teaching that means that we shouldn't say God ill times. Although I think that that can be maybe a sign that you are taking the Lord's name in vain. But taking the Lord's name in vain refers to bearing the name of God, that you are a Jesus follower, that you are a part of the covenant of God, but you're not bearing the weight of this. You're, you're not living the life that God's called you to. You're living a life of sin. You're living a life of faithlessness. Are you living? The, the first part of this prayer is all about changing us to form to God. We should, the way that we live should be set apart setting apart his name. So our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Set apart is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We know that the kingdom that is referred to here is the kingdom that Jesus said that he was here to bring, that he said was his mission when he opened up the scroll of Isaiah, said he was going to give sight to the blind, that he was going to set the captives free. This is the kingdom of God breaking into this world. And whenever we pray the Lord's Prayer, we're praying that the Father's kingdom continue to come, that it reigns in our hearts and life. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
have your way with us. We welcome your rule and reign in our life. We are not in control of ourselves, but we welcome you. And then it shifts. This, is, this part is uh, more about request. And it says, give us day by day our daily bread. We often forget that human life is entirely dependent on six inches of topsoil and the fact that it rains. That is totally dependent on God. We get all of our groceries from the supermarket, so it doesn't really seem like that's the case, but that's really the case. Every piece of food that you eat comes from God, from the Father who gives all good gifts. And what we're told to do here is not to take for granted the fact that we're going to eat, because none of us have, none of us here in the West, for the most part, are wondering, like, where are we going to eat? Maybe where we're going to eat is the question, but what are we going to eat? Like, if we're going to have food, doesn't really come up. But in this prayer is this acknowledgement that we have, are dependent upon our good Father, our God, to give us food. So we acknowledge that the food that we have has been given by him. And then we ask uh, for him to forgive us of our sins and forgive us our sins as we forgive everyone who is indebted to us. So people sin against us, but first, we're, in order to be forgiven by God, we also have to turn and forgive those around us as we are wronged. So change me to forgive like you. Let me let go of the guilt of those who have wronged me. And don't lead us into temptation. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Temptation here is actually the word test. It's the test. And this is a series, this refers to a series of, the, of stories in the Bible where for the most part, men fail. Uh, humans fail over and over again. There's this test that comes up and mankind does not do a good job of passing the test. So the, what we're called to here is hopefully we don't have to encounter the test, but it's likely that we will. And when we do, we, we pray for deliverance from the evil one, from Satan. We, we pray for God to deliver us because he's our good father and he will deliver us. So whenever you meditate on this prayer, whenever you think about this prayer, you're not just saying vain words, but you are really praying an entirely different posture. You're praying the prayer that Jesus prayed. And it changes the way that you view the world. It changes the way that you view your life. It changes the way that you view the sin of your neighbor. It changes the way that you view your food. It changes everything. So my challenge to you, is to pray this prayer each morning and evening. When you rise and when you go to bed, it doesn't take long, each morning and evening for the next 21 days leading up to Easter. And I bet because this is something that Jesus told us to do, and whenever we pray this prayer, we're, we're literally doing what Jesus called us to do. I bet this is gonna change the very nature of our prayers we'll recognize first thing in the morning, our Father. We'll recognize first thing in the morning that it's not our will, but God's that we desire to be done in this world. We'll recognize first thing in the morning that we didn't provide the food that's on our table, but God did. We'll recognize first thing in the morning that the sin of our coworker, the way that they've wronged us, is really something that we can forgive because we've been forgiven by God. Whenever we pray this prayer, 
It changes the way that we communicate with God throughout the day. It changes the way that our longer prayers happen. And it reminds us of that essential part of our relationship with God. So my challenge is to do this for the next 21 days. First thing in the morning, first thing in the first thing in the evening, or last thing in the evening, um, for these 21 days leading up to Easter. Let's let this prayer shape us more into the image of Jesus.